My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Again, with your Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy. You know, if I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Large Hadron Collider is the world's largest and highest energy particle collider built for the purposes of nuclear research in collaboration with over 10,000 scientists and hundreds of universities and laboratories, as well as over 100 countries. CERN Large Hadron Collider lies in a tunnel 27 kilometers in circumference, and this tunnel is as deep as 175 meters. Easily the most shocking development since our industrial revolution, but could it be that the authors of 100 years ago were not only predicting these social themes and constructs of our era, but that they could predict the Large Hadron Collider itself. Here to discuss this with me, Mystic Mark, on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast is Aaron C. from the podcast titled We Talk About Dead People. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Aaron C. very very earliest the very very latest um there were these academics who started having these discussions about how can we transcend what it means to be human how can we become gods um and they wanted to do it through technology and it's amazing because you know c.s lewis oh he wrote children's books no you can find letters that c.s lewis was writing back and forth with this guy named professor haldane who was a committed transhumanist he believed that we were definitely going to replace humans with robots and we were basically going to create a vehicle for the human mind slash soul even though he didn't believe in a soul um, that was going to replace the biological bodies we're born with it became an explicit goal of many academics at oxford to make this happen and that was early 1900s Well, my name's Aaron. I have a show called We Talk About Dead People. I started it as a joke um, with a buddy who was putting me up after I finished college, and I destroyed like almost every good relationship in my life because I was just so angry. Um, 
it was sort of desperate because I'd personally taken a, a big interest in history because I thought we could learn lessons about ourselves through the stories that we'd already lived in various cultures around the world. But as I progressed with, with the show, I started to realize that a lot of this stuff feels like too convenient. It feels like too much of a pre-written story. And so I started looking at the alternative side of history, which firmly puts you in the bad guy camp. You're not allowed to re-examine history um, with a critical eye. Or, you know, there was this meme I even put up on my Patreon about, oh, if a person says they're interested in World War II history, you have to be careful around them, right? And I remember being like, and if they say they're really, really interested, walk away, run away fast. And I'm like, okay, I understand what's going on here. You're afraid of the stories. And that's what they are. They're stories. Um, and everyone thinks, not everyone, but most normal people think history is a, just a pretty decently, well, you know, somewhat biased record of, of what happened in real life. You know, this all definitely happened. There's perception on it. But then I started to realize that it's more like a myth-making process than anything. And you can see this happen in the modern day. You'll see, um, you know, you'll see like uh, people go viral for being a victim of something. And you'll try it. You'll see these like movements to sort of turn them into martyrs or saints. And I start, I try to like stay away from that kind of thing because people are complicated. And when we try to think in this, this sort of like binary of was this the good guy or was this the bad guy? you miss the, the real story that could be happening on the scene. And that's the other thing about history is if you're not looking at yourself while you're studying it, you're missing half the point. Because it's not just, oh, can I, how can I learn from Stalin's mistakes? It's like, how can I learn from this inventor who invented something that wasn't actually that big of a deal, but we use it every single day? So, you know, the, sh the show itself has evolved into something that's a got a little bit more of a mission. It was a storytelling comedy show at first and now every now and then I'll put out something like what I put out yesterday which was a reading of The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster and I don't know if you caught that one but it's not a podcast it's almost literally like an audiobook or a, a presentation I try to make it like a like a movie version of it it's got music and stuff um, but I think that book's really significant have you ever read it? No and I'm sorry I hadn't listened to that episode yet no I Definitely want to check it out as you're describing it, but no, tell us, please. Well, The Machine Stops was, you know, this short no novella, I guess. Um, and uh, it was, uh, it came out at a time when nobody was like talking about this stuff. The story is basically that there's this, it's about this woman who lives in this thing called The Machine, and it provides for her every need. And it has for her entire life. She's only known The Machine. And it's turned her into this weak, short, pathetic little lecturer where she, where basically her job is to find new ideas. And she's out of ideas. There hasn't been an original idea in years. Um, but one day she gets this message from one of her sons from the other side of the planet who says, basically, I want to talk to you in person, not through the machine. And she's like, uh, people don't do that anymore. Like, I haven't seen another human being in at least a few days. We just sit in our rooms, and we basically zoom back and forth, and we exchange ideas. But we don't do this meeting face-to-face. -face. Are you crazy? And so the story goes that eventually she is persuaded to go meet her son, 
and he's broken out of the machine, which is, of course, against the rules. <laughs> but it goes from there, and it's, it's just one little take on sort of this transhumanist realm we're getting into. And it's a, the, transhumanism is a topic I started taking seriously probably five or six years ago. I read That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. Nobody's read that book. They all know The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and maybe The Magician's Nephew. But That Hideous Strength is the third book in a series of three books called The Space Trilogy. You can skip the first two and just go to the third one, and you'll basically have a playbook for how things are working. Is right one now. of those books out of the silent planet? Because I have that's that book. One. Okay, that's yeah. The first one. And that's the worst one. <laughs> yeah, I, that's probably why I don't have the other two. But yeah, okay. Yeah, no, Out of the Silent Planet, I listened to them backwards. I started with that hideous strength on the recommendation from a really good friend of mine. I've probably listened to the audio version of that book a couple dozen times. No exaggeration. Because there was something about it that felt extremely real and extremely prescient. And when I first discovered it, I wasn't thinking about what does it mean to be human. I wasn't thinking about becoming more than human. But it turns out that ever since at least the late at least the late 1800s, at the very, very earliest, the very, very latest, um, there were these academics who started having these discussions about how can we transcend what it means to be human? How can we become gods? Um, and they wanted to do it through technology. And it's amazing because, you know, C.S. Lewis, oh, he wrote children's books. No, you can find letters that C.S. Lewis was writing back and forth to this guy named Professor Haldane, who was a committed transhumanist. He believed that we were definitely going to replace humans with robots, and we were basically going to create a vehicle for the human mind slash soul, even though he didn't believe in a soul, um, that was going to replace the biological bodies we're born with. It became an explicit goal of many academics at Oxford to make this happen. And that was early 1900s. Yeah, I just I just punched in JBS Haldane, John Burden Sanderson Haldane, and uh, yeah, it says he's one of the founders of neo Darwinism. Which we have our thoughts about Darwinism on this show. I was just talking to someone about that earlier today, but uh, I'm curious when it comes to C.S. Lewis. What was his position? Was he partial to the transhumanist agenda or was he warning against it? Well, there's something that you, you know, when I say history seems to repeat itself, you know, some people say it rhymes. And the thing that I firmly believe, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. This has been attempted before, but not in the same way. Um, there are people who try to be transhuman through purely consciousness programming. Um, that's what things like skull and bones are all about. It's like, it can be shocking to look at something like that and be like, whoa, they do all that weird ritual stuff. Are you kidding me? That Why would they do that? They just must be sick. And it's like, when you look at it and you think about it, you're like, no, um, they do hazing rituals in the Marines to turn you into the kind of person who would do the things that need to be done. So wouldn't it make sense that they'd also have a programming system for elite people who are really going to be successful to turn them into the, th the things they need to be in order to do the things that have to be done. And when you look at those programming rituals and hazing things as kind of the same thing, they're supposed to morph your mode of thought, not your thoughts. Like it's not, a, it's like, a, like I'm a voice actor, right? And when I teach new people, I'm like, 
You need to be practicing when you're driving. You need to be doing voices while you're going to work. You need to be playing with this all over. And you need to be doing it where people can hear you so you're embarrassed. Why is that? It's not so that they can hear you. It's not so that you get a, become a better voice actor. It's because it's making you into the kind of person who can say the things uh, that need to be said well because you're programmed to be the kind of person who can. You know, it's like you can sit there and work with somebody on a line and be like, say it like this. And they can say it like that, but you don't believe it because they don't believe it. So the the ritual aspect of all of that stuff, the practice of, say, studying history, it's not so you can list off a bunch of facts. It's so that you can think across time. You know, it's a mode of thought. that give you anything <laughs> i'm curious about c.s lewis and i know you're kind of saying that it's it's not uh it's not there's nothing new under the sun really let me let me reconnect it to c.s lewis i know i get lost but that's all right i'll reconnect it to c.s lewis because he would say that what we're seeing with transhumanism now is just a repeat program from way back in the day in fact he wrote a book um called the dark tower which was never finished and it was about these academics. He always writes about academics for some reason. He wrote, it's about these academics who invent this device where they can project an image on a wall from where they know not where. And when they know not when. So they don't know if they're looking into the future or the past or if they're looking at this planet or another planet or another dimension entirely. But what they see through this window is a giant tower. And around this tower is like a walkway. And there's all these people lined up going up around to the top, and at the top they go through a door, and then they don't come out. And so these academics are just watching this for like days, and they're like, we need to figure out where this is, what's going on. Um, and then one day, I can't remember exactly how it happens, but I think they leave it alone for a while and they come back, and the angle has changed. So now that they're, now the camera is basically showing an image inside the tower, they think. They're, they can't be too sure. But it's like, a person will come through the door and there's this massive creature sitting across from them and there's this device hanging from the ceiling and basically these people walk up to this device stick their arm under it and it pokes them with something and then I can't exactly remember what happens after that but what they discover is that not only is this like a, a, a view into the world they can go through it but also things can come back through it and the book ends with something from the world coming through and some one of the professors on Earth going through it and getting stuck. So, Damn. basically, what I would basically say... Basically what they're doing at CERN, C.S. Lewis predicted, you're saying. Basically, yeah. <laughs> but it would have the framework of early 19th century science and academia. Right, right. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, and I'm, I'm just going to add to what you're saying because I think the whole uh, early world of science fiction is so fascinating when you have the hindsight that we do in this age to see what actually panned out and what maybe didn't pan out or did pan out behind black budgets and closed doors. But, yeah, I, I, maybe I was asking a sort of, uh, you know, a question that can't be answered, but yeah, I was just curious to know if C.S. Lewis had a, had a sort of like a moral component to that story that was warning against that kind of thing. It almost seems like he was prophetic with that uh, jabby portion of what you mentioned, but yeah, it definitely seems like, because uh, 
I may be a little keen on C.S. Lewis because I had a big uh, breakthrough, I guess, through that movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I remember seeing it in theaters as, as a kid, and I was reading Ripley's Believe It or Not. I was into the strange stuff. But but this movie kind of like really took me for a loop. The concept of, you know, a portal going into this closet. Really, I mean, that's what we're talking about in that movie. It's kind of watered down and I'm sure it has. It's like Joseph Campbell sort of thing going on where he took a bunch of myths and synthesized them together. But I've also read that he was a pretty Christian guy. Like he was a very uh, Protestant, maybe. I don't know what denomination, but yeah. Well, it's like, see, it's like when you see the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it feels so true. Like mm. this should, this just happens, right? There's, right. Why is there a portal in a wardrobe, and why does that feel so right? And you know, Lewis, even himself, when he was an atheist, um, he said he, all of all of his favorite authors shared the same problem. They were all Christians, so he couldn't like them, right? Because he was anti-Christian. And around the same time, he was an atheist. He was really getting into occultism like hardcore occultism. Um, and uh, he started to work that into his Christian books. So a normal Christian would read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and they're like, wow, it's an allegory for Jesus. It's an allegory for a story I read in the Bible. And J.R.R. Tolkien actually criticized him and said, you know, The Lord of the Rings is a complex, you know, Christian story, but it's not so on the nose as that. But you start reading the books and you start looking at them more closely and it's very clear to me that C.S. Lewis was burying stuff he learned by studying the occult into this Christian understanding of, you know, the world. Narnia itself is, you know, an, it's an upside-down world in a way to ours. Like, there's scenes in that hideous strength where um, Merlin wakes up and is stunned to find that people are walking around in drab colors instead of wearing their, you know, flowing, colorful robes. C.S. Lewis was really into, like, merging worlds together. And once you have the background of a little bit of spiritual understanding, you know, the weird stuff on your wall and on your bookshelf, I'm sure, you can read C.S. Lewis and every single book has like dozens of layers. And that's why I, always, I sound like a broken record for my people. It's like, read that hideous strength. It's all there. Well, you just added it to my Amazon book list. Folks who want to support the library back here can go to the Amazon list and send it to me. You don't even need to know my address. You can add to the library. And if you sign up for the Patreon, I'll send you a book back at the right tier. But I'm not going to plug the Patreon too much while Aaron's here. But thanks for the opportunity to, to do that. Uh, I'm sure you have one for your show or, or a way that people can support you so uh, please do that as well, my folks. Um, but yeah, man, C.S. Lewis is interesting. I don't know enough to keep going at this pace with C.S. Lewis, just yeah. unless you have more to share, which by all means, please fill us in. But he is an interesting figure. I found a couple of his books and they've always stood out to me. And I, again, ignorant of his atheist portion of his life and the occultism fascination I saw him as a Christian writer who was very clearly esoteric. That's kind of how I yeah. categorized him in my mind. I'm like, I was a little baffled because at that time, you know, I grew up raised Roman Catholic and, you know, we didn't really appreciate what we were learning in church. It was just kind of like something you did on Sundays begrudgingly. So 
that turned me off from C.S. Lewis. And I was more interested in like Carlos Castaneda and, and other writers. And, but yeah, definitely he's, he's appeared and that movie definitely stuck out to me. Um, but you know, now I try to stay away from the social engineering altogether, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm the same way. I haven't been to a movie theater in at least three years. Mm. Um, I, I, but what's funny is that once you learn some of this stuff, like, you know, that you talk about and all these other esoteric shows talk about, you can go back and watch movies that you thought were programming or that you figured out were programming. And you can see that there's levels to them that you didn't understand before. And so it's like, now it's a real treat for me to go back and watch a movie I'd seen a dozen times before. Like, uh, there will be blood. Uh, that one's just teeming with esoteric meaning and all sorts of like spiritual teaching throughout the film. I mean, like it hit me on a really deep level when I was still basically a normie. But when I got, went through the whole process, I was like, ah, it's programming like all the others and wanted to look away. And when I finally went back to watch clips of it, I was like, oh my God, I had no idea what was going on here. Tell us about this. Cause I've, I've had a similar impression from that movie. I saw it before I was really versed in this stuff, uh, enough to recognize it at least. And, uh, yeah, all that stands out and I hope I'm not misremembering and thinking of another movie, but all that really stands out is the like cow gun that he has. Right. Am I thinking of the same movie? Yeah, the cow gun. Yeah, it's like some kind of weird vacuum pressure thing that he like kills people with, and they use it to oh, kill cows. No, that's uh, that's no country for old men. Oh man, I but, knew I was doing that shit. That's another one. No country for old men, just packed with it. Okay. Um, but there will be bloods. The one about the oil man. Okay. Yeah, and the milkshake scene and all that. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I can. The basic rundown there is his feud is with a religious guy. He's not a religious guy. He's just trying to get the pastor off his back. Mm. And the reality is that Daniel Day-Lewis's character is sort of an ascended master in a way. It starts with him picking away at um, shale in the ground, trying to find oil and all that stuff. He literally gets one of his guys killed in one of his first oil operations, and he has oil all over his hands, which is representative of blood. I'm sure you've heard oil is the blood of the earth, that sort of thing. Um and basically throughout the movie at various times, he's either getting bathed in oil or he's throwing somebody into a pool of oil or all that kind of stuff. And he's really obsessed with his relationship with his son. And the final scene of that movie, spoiler alert, you get the final face down between this pastor who's been holding out on this land and Daniel Day-Lewis's character. Um, and you see that one of them is a true man and the other is just a liar. And even though Daniel Day-Lewis's character is broken and ultra-rich and murderous at that point, you see that he's still acting like a human being while the pastor is behaving like an animal. And it ends up with, uh, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis slaughtering this guy on his bowling alley. Um, but again, it's like a guy like you uh, could watch that movie and just pick this stuff out. I mean, and it's all through the movie. But... I find it a treat. I think it's great. When you can put on the glasses of the weird, you really start to net. You're never going to be bored again. <laughs> mm. Well, and I got to ask you, as somebody who puts a lot of time and production into their podcast, like how many times do these like 
things you're looking into sort of reach back out to you in a sort of mystical synchronistic kind of way. Cause even just in this conversation, you've mentioned three or four things that, uh, that I've thought about in this past day. I just had a conversation with another guest. He mentioned Tolkien. You just mentioned Tolkien earlier. And then you also talked about the blood of the earth, which you couldn't know this cause this show hasn't been released yet. It's a secret show that I'm working on a new project and we talked all about this oil field in Indiana and how um, they named the company Mount Vesuvius. It's this big Indiana gas boom and all this esoteric stuff that kind of goes into the toponymy of places and whatnot. But that's probably too much. I've already said enough. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I wonder how many times with your show, you know, you're researching these strange figures in history and and sometimes not even distant figures. Like you talk about even people that are, you know, only relatively recently passed away. So uh, I'm sure you've had some synchronistic occasions. Oh, dude, I can't even begin. Like, <laughs> what I'm about to say, I don't think I'm gonna. I don't think I can say it right. So I'm just gonna give it the old college try and see if I can get something close. Um. So people say. So it says in the Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, legend turned to myth, history turned to legend, legend turned to myth. And that is kind of what happens with history as a whole is like, if you look at the 20th century, you've got written records, maybe films, pictures, audio recordings of the people who are still alive. The further back you go, the dimmer the image appears. So you start to run into like the story of the founding of Rome by Romulus and Remus. Well, it was by Romulus, uh, raised by a wolf. That's just the official story of the guy who built Rome. You start to see that the Aeneid and the Iliad and the Odyssey and Agamemnon and all of these classics are actually tied together like frickin' Harry Potter or something. But also, they're strangely historical. They have cyclopses in them and giants and, you know, the underworld and all these creepy monsters. But then it just sort of fades into ordinary Roman history. And it's such a it's such a natural crossfade that at a certain point I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, how much of this stuff is figurative? How much of this stuff is uh, symbol? How much of this stuff is literal? And how can we tell the difference? So, what I'm, I'm going to try to say what I'm thinking, but it's going to be really hard. Um, basically, I started to wonder if there weren't patterns in the world and in human thought that simply repeated, like a fractal. And why we can look at a person in real life and see them as a hero or a villain or a warrior or a monk, what archetype did they fill? And that's around the time I discovered, well, one of the first books that really got me was Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, right? And I started to wonder, well, perhaps the hero's journey isn't the only fractal of the human story out there. Maybe there's more. And then I started to realize that, oh, of course there are. Of course there are. And then you start to get into tarot, and you're like, whoa. So there's, like, basically categories that people fit in in certain parts of their life or where they are in their walk spiritually. And these categories are actually quite useful and very accurate. Um, but, you know, to back up a little bit, from a historical perspective, you know, I look at someone like... Um, Oh geez, I talked about I talked about William Tell on Sam Tripoli's show, so I don't want to repeat it here, but it's basically the same thing. 
we don't know if he was a real guy, but there's castles that have been destroyed in a war around the time William Tell would have existed. And, you know, does it matter if he did literally exist? Because the story had the effect. <laughs> it had the same effect as whether he had existed or not. People overthrew their evil lords, you know? But, yeah, I, I don't know if that makes any sense. I feel like I babble when I try to explain this stuff because it's really deep. But no, no, no. I, I'm I'm sort of following you, at least more than when we started. But also you gave me an opportunity to smoke a little bit of my magic powers there with my cannabis in my backwoods. So it works for me. I don't recommend listeners at home do it. But, yeah, absolutely. I'm following you. I think the the fractalization of the archetype concept, right? If we could go back to that and... I don't, I don't know. I mean, because when you hear people talk about this, it borders on like, oh, um, maybe this person's like crazy. They're delusional. Right? Like you hear people, they're like, oh, I'm the second coming of, uh, you know, this famous musician or, or this like, you know, maybe even that farther out there, like a prophet or something like that. Right. I mean, Jesus comes to mind, obviously, but there have been far crazier and, you know, even really accurate. I mean, we get into the whole world of channeling and take that for what it's worth. It definitely seems like at least in the 19th century channeled texts were a big inspiration for, you know, the occult <laughs> fanboys of the day. I mean, the Blavatsky's and oh, yeah. uh, Manly P hall, you know, they were sort of drawing on some of the things that were being channeled, but yeah, I've often wondered, you know, how how many times do we rhyme with our lifetimes? Because I, I believe in reincarnation. That's not something that, uh, you know, I think is worth debating. It's just a personal decision that I've made that, okay, yeah, I'm going to reincarnate, right? And, yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it, you know, especially when you consider, you know, I was just talking to you about the Yale thing. This guy, Eli, who Yale, I mean, when you look at his connections in blood, geneal genealogy, you know, he goes back to the conquerors, the Norman conquerors who conquered Ireland and, and England. And he goes back even further to some Italian nobles. And it's like, how do these people like consistently, you know, stay in these positions of power over these vast distances of time? You know, it definitely feels like there's a certain science to reincarnating and maybe that means there's like a royal archetype, right? And they reincarnate into this royal archetype each time. Hmm. Yeah, that could be. I mean, I sort of think of it as like different filters. I don't know. So you've got like a, I don't know how to explain this. So you've got like a strainer or something and you're pouring powder through it and the larger granules get caught. So you put those over there and then you pour what's left through a tighter strainer and some of the larger granules get caught and the much smaller ones slip through and you're working your way till you get to this very, very fine powder. Sometimes I feel like that's how it works with, with how people embody archetypes in the real world. There's like very, very few people who can make it all the way to the filter and that's like a Jesus uh, or even worse, like a Hitler, right? There's just not that many of them, and they make a ripple in history, and it's like, holy hell, like, there aren't that many of those guys. Um, and then, you know, you think about, like, Abraham Lincoln. I think he was the kind of guy who, he was a man, he was the man of the year, the man of the hour. He was the only one who could do what he did, and he knew it. Um, and so 
in his campaigning for the presidency, he started to embody this, like, I'm going to save America's soul. Um, I'm going to be that guy. It's the only presidential election that ever caused a civil war, right? Like the moment he got into office, states were seceding. And you look at his marketing and how he was seen by people, they, you know, they see him as like a saint. He was just a kid from Indiana, you know, uh, just some lawyer. Um, but he knew, or at least his uh, campaign managers knew, how they could make him look. So they portrayed him a certain way as this sort of like struggling, like man of the people who had to fight against this big bad government and save the union and all that stuff. The funny thing about that, though, is when you make someone an idol or a hero, you create two sides instantly. People who adore him and can't see his flaws and people who hate him and can't see his benefits. That's why you get something like a civil war. And that's why it's still divisive today to even talk about. You're reminding me of uh, something I was just listening to about Francis Bacon, someone I mentioned earlier. And uh, they talk about how he's the alleged real author of Shakespeare, and it lines up perfectly with all the gaps in his timeline when Shakespeare came out. I'm sure you've heard this theory. Uh, But Macbeth, that play has to do with this sort of MK Ultra thing where this guy is like hypnotized into murdering. And I, I'm really giving a, a rough estimate of this story. It's a legendary tale, so I'm not doing it justice. But Macbeth is a, is an MK Ultra guy who starts a civil war. And we have like kind of the inverse of that with Lincoln where it seems like uh, whoever assassinated him Maybe they weren't MK Ultra, but it certainly, you know, was at the the height of a of a civil war. I wonder, like with Lincoln, what are the more conspiratorial things you found about him? I mean, there's some wild theories about Lincoln. I mean, he was very <laughs> tall. Some people say maybe he was a, a, a giant of some sort. But anything strange that you learned when you're studying Lincoln? I know you did an episode about him not too long ago. I learned there was a there's a hilarious theory that he was both Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis. He was an actor who played both parts. And Jefferson Davis was somebody notable at that time. He was the president of the Confederacy. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. And they look they look pretty darn similar. And so I just was like, oh, that could be. I mean, I have no freaking clue. It's not like I was there, right? But that was another place where I was like, okay, so we know that like royalty, they have doubles. And back in the day, the peasants wouldn't know if they were looking at a double or not, right? So if you needed to basically make a speech and also get something done over here, you could go over there and send your double out to talk to the people, and they wouldn't know, right? So it's like, you know, whenever you see a celebrity, you're like, man, he was shorter than I thought he was. Um, It's like maybe he is actually, like, that's his double, and he's just shorter. Who knows? Well, no, I I mean, geez, yeah, that brings a lot to mind. I mean, Lincoln definitely feels like someone who – has been propped up as this great, amazing president. And uh, a lot of people poke holes at that, you know, in that theory. They have all sorts of theories about what he was really up to. And I'm not an expert, so we don't need to get into that. I know it's a contentious topic anytime you talk about slavery. But, uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, Abraham Lincoln is certainly interesting, especially when you get into the stuff about the federal government and how he was sort of uh, a federalist and and sort of a part of 
instituting a lot of things that went against the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. And there's some people who get really riled up and they're like, oh, well, Lincoln and Lincoln actually enslaved all of America by creating the union and all this stuff or whatever. I've heard that theory. I'm like, even if he did that intentionally, which I, I highly doubt, it was probably a plan on the books for God knows how long, and he just happened to be there at the right time when it happened. Mm. I don't know how any of that works. But, you know, I was just reminded of something. Um, I hope this isn't too off topic, but you were asking if I'd seen, like, esoteric emanations in history. Yeah. Well, we covered the Picards, um, which were a father and son. And August Picard was the guy who invented the uh, stratospheric hot air balloon. Which, the only reason I even looked into this was I was in an antique shop with my girlfriend. And I was like, we saw a guy, a bust on the shelf, this little stone head. And it said, uh, the name on it was Justice Von Liebig. And I said, sounds like a lawyer. Justice Von Liebig, get it? <laughs> she thought it was hilarious. So I was like, I got to find out who this Justice Von Liebig is. So it's, it's actually a guy named Justus Von Liebig who invented the little meat cubes the bullion cubes uh, that you use in soup. But anyway, he also spot, I think, I believe he also sponsored August Picard's stratospheric hot air balloon, which was, they were going to go up there to measure cosmic rays of some kind. And it's hilarious because you can find actual like promo videos that August Picard did back in the day where he's talking about, oh, thank you for the sponsorships. We're going to go up to the stratosphere and measure the cosmic rays. Uh, and he built what was what was called it. Well, it was I'll just explain it. It was just a spherical chamber that he attached to a giant balloon, and they were going to go all the way up to the stratosphere. And so they did this. They sent this ball all the way up there, and they dealt with high temperature changes. It wasn't easy being up there. Um, the flat Earth people like to quote him as saying he saw that the world was flat and there was like an upturned edge and that sort of thing. And that legit is in some of the interviews he says, and then he changes it later on. But I'm, I don't have a position on that one. But basically, he went up to the highest point a person had ever been in a sphere, and then he came back down. And then a few years, a few short decades later, his son, Jacques Picard, took a bathyscaphe, which was a spherical capsule beneath a submarine um, down to the deepest point on the planet Earth. Right? So you got this as above, so below. The Marianas Trench? The Marianas Trench. Okay. Yeah. And you look at that and you're like, okay, so we've got a family that claims to have gone the highest of any in the world and the lowest using the same device. I suspect there's something going on there. I don't know what it is exactly, but it's too suspicious. You know, it's like when you start looking into the the moon landings and there's too many weird esoteric numbers in there. You're like, I'm not saying we didn't go, but this is an awfully weird coincidence. And I don't think it's either or. I don't think it's either it's a whole conspiracy or we absolutely went to the moon and everything's great. I think even like whether or not it happened, it lined up with something. And I don't know if it was intentional or not. Well, I'll tell you what, anybody who wears hats like this is fishy in my book. Do you see this? Can you see these hats? Yep, yep. Look <laughs> at these hats. helmets. Jeez. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's uh, Jacques <laughs> Picard in the background there. Okay. All right. Wow. Yeah, definitely strange. I've actually heard recently 
theories that the Nazca lines were created with the help of uh, hot air balloons that the ancient Incans were using. They had these skins, you know, from big animals. I don't know if they, the theory was that they had some sort of pachyderm, but there is evidence that in India they were doing the same thing with the skins of elephants and Africa as well, Morocco and places like that. But yeah, here in uh, South, well, not here, but in South America, they were using uh, these hot air balloons, and that's what the Nazca lines apparently, why they were able to create this art that could only be viewed from a bird's eye. Uh, it was because they had all these competing sort of royalty figures that would go up in their hot air balloons and say, oh, look what I got my people to create this beautiful, you know, hummingbird and, oh, well, I'm going to make this symbol, you know. So I think there's a lot deeper um, history when we dive into aviation and and this, you know, free energy, we'll say, because, I mean, it doesn't seem like they had any fuel source on this. I mean, what what did you find? What Were they just burning some sort of gas to propel them upwards? What is this device that they were using? Uh, I ha- As far as, like, the Picards go? Yeah. It was a specific kind of gas. I don't remember what. It was a while ago that I did the research. Um, but they were using it for surveillance and stuff, all kinds of different uses, um, and it was expensive. Um but you know, you actually you reminded me of something. Um, speaking of royalty having flying machines, have you ever run into the uh, the story of the guy falling from the sky and giving people technology? Well, I'm, there's a lot of myths. I mean, that's kind of the Promethean thing, not yeah. explicitly, but yeah, we've seen it. It rhymes, but no. What tell us about this specific story? Well, before. I'm trying not to get too lost here. I know I can. Um, no, we love this. This is how most conversations on this podcast go. Okay, I know, but like at the same, cause I listen to the show. It's just like, man, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so basically, basically, there's a there's a book by H. G. Wells called uh, "Things uh, Things to Come." think it's things to come there's a movie of it you can watch it for free on youtube um and it's about uh the end of the world it starts out with a world war three everything gets blown to hell um people are trying to crawl their way back to civilization and uh they deal with a pandemic that kills a lot of them they deal with infighting and they eventually revert to like monarchy and it's based on the guy who basically could provide the most security. He becomes the king. And one day this this plane falls from the sky and it appears to be someone who survived the war and produced like a technological utopia. He climbs out and he sees their backward way of being and basically forces them to come to his city and join them. What's funny is that when I started this movie, I was watching it again with my girlfriend and I was like, well, I saw the first thing in the movie is you see these spotlights. One of the first things you see is these spotlights cross during the the um, during some kind of an air raid, and it produces a Freemason symbol. And I said, "Oh, this is a, this is a Freemason. This is a Freemasons movie. Like, just watch closely. I guarantee there will be a guy who falls out of the sky and gives people technology." And then it happened, and I was like, "Okay, we can watch this one and look for esoteric symbolism." 
And uh, there, there's even literally a guy named Cabal in it um, who's, like, running the whole thing. It's really interesting. It's totally worth watching, especially for those of you who like picking at the esoteric stuff. Things to come, right? Things to come, Okay. Yeah. And then what's funny is that the whole scene of science fiction, like uh, War of the Worlds, um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, or 30,000, I can't remember, a long way under the sea, <laughs> um, Planet of the Apes, all of these classic science fiction, the movies don't do them justice in the sense that the books are so esoterically encoded, it becomes painful when you're reading it, or any of them, because you're just like, it was that on the nose, and nobody noticed it. They just thought it was a movie about a planet filled with apes. They just thought it was about a giant submarine. But once you have a little bit of this understanding, you see that the science fiction writers were just wizards who changed their clothes. And you can see this illustrated in the movie A Trip to the Moon, which was one of the first, like, longer movies. Jules Verne, right. Yeah. Trip to the Moon. Uh, the first One of the first things you see is you've got these wizards trying to figure something out in their wizard tower. And one of them has the bright idea. Ah, yes. Turn your robes inside out. And they've got these robes on that are all covered in stars and symbols and stuff. So they turn them inside out and they're white lab coats. And then they start using science to build their stuff to get to the moon. And it's right there in the film. Uh, and then you watch the mo- that, that film as a whole and it's just, again, packed with all of this symbolism. And if you know what you're looking for, it's right there. But the first time I saw that movie, I was just a film student. I was like, ha, special effects are kind of bad. <laughs> you know? Right. And I've seen that movie. I think it's one of the first color films, right? It, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that, yeah, I mean, you're hitting on a lot of the, the buttons that we like to cover on this show. And I keep using the word we, but I've been, you know, keeping my eye on the telegram. So I feel very connected to the audience. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I feel... Totally, you know, have you ever looked into a guy named John Winthrop the Younger? Mm-mm, no. So a while a while ago when I was just a wayward Amazon delivery driver listening to podcasts on like eight hour, you know, doses at a time, I would, uh, I would just kind of pick up little clues here and there, right? And one of them was in a Peter Lavenda interview. And I had forgot it was even Peter Lavenda until recently when I re-listened to it. But he said, oh, the first governor of Connecticut was an alchemist. And I live in Connecticut, so I'm like, holy shit, the first governor of this state was an alchemist? And you go and look it up, and of course... You know, the first governor of the state of Connecticut is not an alchemist, but the first governor of the colony of Connecticut is an alchemist. So, you know, it was a little it was a little nuanced. I didn't find it at first. But then recently I started looking into this guy, um, John Winthrop, the younger through my research into New England. And I find out, yeah, not only is he an alchemist, but he was strolling around where I live and he was looking for this type of uh, silver that they thought was all over the place here, but it was actually just mica. And, uh, you know, I guess mica is somewhat mineralogically related to silver. You can sort of use it possibly to indicate where silver could be. but they, they ran into a lot of strange things. They ran into the Native Americans who were doing all kinds of rituals. And they, I think, 
in John Winthrop the Younger's case, possibly synthesize some of the things that they had in the old world, alchemy, magic, you know, Wicca type stuff. So it wasn't Wicca then, but now you might think of it as Wicca uh, into what we would consider like shamanism to use a big, huge word that means so many different things. But yeah, it's very interesting to, to see where these two worlds collide. And um, I think modern medicine itself uh, is kind of born in the New England colonies because of that, uh, because of this like fusion of the folk, craft of the you know old world europe and the new world shamanism uh and of course you know the indians the native americans really took the the brunt of that one and probably will get never get any credit unfortunately but yeah it was definitely a big interest of these guys who founded these colonies uh you know where the magical energies were who who had what powers and these kind of stories just keep coming up um and i i i'm sure it's true for other states not just the east coast but yeah you you did do an episode on uh roger bacon i don't know if you've done an episode on francis bacon not related at all those two people surprisingly um but yeah have you looked into like the early colony days like i'm sure you have i'm sure you've covered different people there but anything that i just said stand out <laughs> dude like there was some weird stuff going on in those i mean there was some kind of combination of worlds that created the strangest stuff you can find in history american history is so weird it's like you look at the history of europe and it's just like oh, okay so this guy was a king and then another guy became a king and then they had to fight over some some kind of resource and yeah, you know, there's some weird magic mixed up in there a little bit, especially in like England. Um, but when you get to America and it's just English people who don't belong there, <laughs> some weird, weird stuff starts to happen. Uh, and I think the best the best one to point to is, of course, everyone's favorite, Joseph Smith. So uh, Joseph Smith being, for those of you who don't know, the, the founder of Mormonism. Now, I didn't know that many Mormons before I started reading about Joseph Smith. Um, the ones I did know, kind of, I was kind of like, you stay over there, I'll stay over here, we're all good. I like a shirt, by the way, you know, that kind of stuff. But when you look into Joseph Smith, the first reaction you have is like, what was this guy thinking? This guy was crazy. Like, he, I read all, all of the books that he channeled or whatever when I was in my atheist phase, and I was, like, laughing the whole time because I'm like, this is hysterical. People believe this? You know, he's got, like, a freaking wooden submarine coming from, you know, Israel to America to start a, an empire that existed here before anybody came here to settle. And it was, you know, it, it was just all this craziness happening. There's cataclysm on the planet multiple times, you know, something like, 12 a whole year of pure darkness or something like i mean just like crazy stuff and when i started researching him i came at it from a character point of view i was like okay so he was like a he was like a uh, con man of some kind and he came up with this idea like l ron hubbard did of like if i want to make a lot of money and make my mark in this world i gotta make a religion so he came up with this story of translating these golden plates through a scrying stone in a hat and only he could see the plates and only one other person could see the translation. And, you know, it's just this overwhelming amount of weird stuff. Like people think 
or people think and can prove, at least in part, that he used psychedelics on his congregation to make them see angels. Um, he tried to start his own bank because he saw the uh, writing on the wall somehow that there was going to be a Federal Reserve, but everyone saw that as just another scam. And he went down in history as being killed trying, like in a jail because he pissed off all the right people. But then you look at what happened after he died, and you had the establishment of Salt Lake City, um, the establishment of a religious hegemony in the state that's still there. So say what you want about the guy, but he had quite an effect on history. And if you read some of his stuff, again, from an esoteric point of view, it's, it, it's not all crazy. There's some stuff in there that's just encoded. And it sounds silly because you're reading it at a surface level. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard a lot about it. I mean, obviously the Freemasons were big when he was in New York State still, and uh, and that inspired a lot of the early F Mormons, you know, the Freemasonic stuff I've heard. But he was also very interested in uh, in treasure and searching out for treasure. Have you looked into that at all and his uh, his golden plates that he found? Oh yeah, yeah. He was. That's the story. Is he was searching for riches using his special stone that he could see, you know, hidden, buried treasure through. And the tablets were just one that he happened upon that happened to be, you know, the inspired writings of, you know, the, one of the last survivors of this ancient civilization. Mm. And it's really fascinating. Um, but yeah, it does come from that same adventurous point of view where it's like things like buried treasure and visitations from angels and, you know, throwing out demons and, and cryptids in the forest and like witches and wizards and all that kind of interesting stuff. Right. Joseph Smith was all about that. He'd probably love your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they had this whole, what they called the state of Deseret. It never became a actual state but if you, you if you look it up you could find uh old maps and stuff and it was basically like nevada utah and a bunch of other portions of what are now you know the states out west and they were just like yeah this is all our territory and the weirdest thing that stuck out to me was they had this like beehive as their symbol which a beehive definitely has a Masonic implication. I've oh, even yeah. seen it in uh, Skull and Bones. But you've come across the beehive. What do, what do you know about it? I, I'm really kind of, uh, I don't know much about it. Well, the the bee, man, bees, that's something crazy. My mom works with bees. She oh, makes wow. delicious honey and we sell it. It's awesome. But uh, she knows a ton about bees. The, uh, the machine stops, going back to that, starts out. And the first thing, the first line is... Uh, that this woman's apartment is shaped like a hexagon, like a cell of a bee. Hmm. And so you start to understand that the machine itself in this transhumanist world is like a beehive. Everybody's just sort of like wussified, um, which would align with like the beehive understanding of the world. And I think you can learn about different worlds through different kinds of animals and that sort of thing, and insects especially. <laughs> but uh, beehives, you know, the, the bees are basically all female. You know, my mom calls them the girls. <laughs> She's like, go on, girls, and go out there. Um, and you look at what we're doing today is like we've got a serious loss of masculinity um, pretty much everywhere in the world except for like some places that see it on the wall, and they're like, we don't want that. Um, 
you know, it, it seems like everybody's kind of trying to be kind of like turned into this little like thing that can be pushed around or herded around or say swarmed around, um, sort of driven by the energy of others. You know, they're not thinking enough. They're just sort of drifting. And I think that, you know, not to make this scary or anything, but I do think that's the goal. Um, they really do want a bunch of drones going around who can't, you know, break from the herd, so to speak. Um, and one thing that I would point out that, you know, probably we could have an extended conversation about is like, why is all this crazy stuff happening? Um, why is it that we're just like from one narrative to the next day after day after day? It's because of that, because we aren't sort of, it's so very few people are willing to stick their head above the clouds and see what's really going on, or at least attempt to explain it. Um, but if, here's the, here's the weird, I, I, I think this is my, maybe my weirdest conspiracy theory. <laughs> um, I think the intention is to get more people to do that. I think the intention with all of this crazy narratives like, oh my God, can you believe they did this today? What hypocrites? I think the process is an attempt to get more people to stand up, to see if they can be, to see if they can find any sort of true people who will just be like, this is nonsense. Mm. I had that thought actually like two years ago. I was driving home from work. I'm like, what if they're trying to find people who can think <laughs> or who can at least be critical about their world? Yeah. What, you know, what if they're trying to pinpoint little hubs of consciousness? I, I'm with you 100%. You're bringing up a couple different thoughts. I, I hate to keep bringing it back to Francis Bacon, but I've been researching this uh, this time period recently. And uh, what you're talking about is something that the, the Calvinists believed in in a weird way. The, the Calvinists' religion was a big part of the founding of New Haven. And it's weird. They, they created the, the town in a nine-square grid, which is... Uh, kind of an interesting has some symbolic implications um but yeah they believed in this concept that uh you know everybody who was participating in the world had uh, a role it was very different than how you laid it out so don't I hope you don't think i'm mischaracterizing you you're definitely not a puritan or a calvinist they were crazy uh, but yeah they believe that, you know, the, the evilest people were like serving God's will in this sort of like devilish way. Right. So it, it was almost like uh, an excuse for them to do really heinous things because they sort of saw it as like, well, evil is inspiring people to purify themselves. So if we have to play the devil's role to provoke people to see God's light, then we're doing God's will, right? So that's kind of what you reminded me of there. I know you weren't sort of seeing it that way, but I do think, you know, we've talked about this concept on the show before where, you know, we're all actors in a way, you know, everybody fits a role to even bring back what you were talking about before with the archetypes, right? I mean, I think there is some truth to that where, you know, we shouldn't be so paranoid and think that the that we're all doomed because in a sort of inverted way, the elite are serving a purpose by provoking the 99% to, you know, hate the 1% and maybe make some changes that they want to see in the world instead of letting uh, the active few control the lazy many, right? I mean, that is kind of, 
I think the brighter side of what you were saying there is like, there's a sort of inherent growth that comes from any type of suffering. Yes. Yes. And it's funny that you say that, um, we covered a guy, I never know how to pronounce it, uh, Shabbatai Zevi, Zevi, Sabbatai. He's at the core of a lot of conspiracy theories for all the wrong reasons. But he was basically a Jewish guy who believed, he, he developed this, this uh, ideology called Sabbatian Frankism. And they believed, at least, at least this is as far as I could tell, it would align with other, you know, wizard programs, so to speak, but basically, in order to understand the full forgiveness of God's grace, you had to experience all of the sin you could possibly do. Um, now, that's pretty much on point with sort of Freemason, Freemasonic and other esoteric understandings of this filtration process, where they're happy to play the devil. If you don't believe in the devil, they'll, they're happy to be the devil until you understand the devil. And they're happy to pretend to be your God until you understand that there's a God beyond them. And going back to C.S. Lewis, that's a lot like the White Witch in uh, Chronicles of Narnia. When she kills Aslan on the stone table and Aslan comes back, he says, there was an even deeper magic than that, that the emperor laid out before the beginning of time that said these rules are in place and you can play these parts, but good's going to win in the end. And that's why I said at the beginning, it's pretty much a mathematical, a mathematical absolute that good will win. But in order for something to grow and become stronger, it has to go through a process. So, you know, after college, the only job I could get was to work in a, in a freezer in a warehouse. And that was eight hours a day in zero degrees, basically sweeping floors and clearing broken pallets out of bays, um, driving heavy equipment at high speed in the cold. You know, not fun. I wouldn't trade it for – I would do it again in a heartbeat. Because what it did is it gave me a backbone. And it helped me to understand that, you know, it can be scary looking at the, the, the rich people and the, the political people and the big scary people. But you know what the guys in the warehouse are listening to all day long? Podcasts like this one. You know what the guys in the front of the office, the rich guys are doing? They're just making money, man. And they're pretending to work. Um, some days, some days they do stuff, but they're not, they're not raising their awareness. But, you know, you have conversations with normal people with normal jobs these days and you're like, okay, maybe my family thinks I'm crazy, but these people don't, you know? Boom. Well said, man. Yes. And that was, you know, you summed up my career as a delivery driver because it yeah. was, it was like, when it clicked that, oh, wow, I'm educating myself for free, I got yep. really into working hard because I realized, like, I'm I'm actually, like, backdooring my education in a weird way. I'm getting paid to learn, and it was such an inspiring thing. And I think people have to have the freedom or the, the you know, the ability or the courage to jump from one job to the next, which might sound counterintuitive. You know, my grandparents and my parents they always drilled this idea into me that you need to get one job a solid job and just ride that sucker out as long as you can and i've found so much more value in trying out different things and taking skills i learned from one job and applying them to the next and each job has led me to what i'm doing now and 
you know, I wouldn't trade this for uh, anything else. But if I had to, I would go back to being a delivery driver because, hey, that's just eight hours a day. I could be learning, you know, now I, I listen to podcasts less than I used to. But uh, but yeah, man, I, I think that's really inspiring. And I know people listening to podcasts are like, yeah, no shit. We know this stuff. But, you know, it's important to remind them that, you know, not just them, but we're reminding ourselves here. We're normal people too with normal jobs. I mean, shit, I was landscaping all week. I still got to pay my bills, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, there's a sort of 99th monkey effect to what we're participating in here where we're slowly ratcheting up the awareness of the collective consciousness. And that might sound new agey and hippie and all that, but we wouldn't be able to do that without the internet. All of this is because of the internet. And it's so strange that, you know, when you look into the history of the internet, you find that these concepts were already thought of way back when, when CS Lewis and Jules Verne and these other guys we were talking about earlier, when they were around, they had this concept of cybernetics you know, they had this concept of, uh, you know, an integrated network of minds, you know, and then look at what we have now. Look what it's doing. So if this is leading us to a transhumanistic future, I don't think it's necessarily it doesn't necessarily have to be a dark one. You know, no. I mean, to bring it back to what we were talking about with the, you know, the groups like the Sabbatean Francus, uh, I learned recently that the Templars believe that the God of the, um, you know, Old Testament religions is considered a demiurge, you know, they converted to Gnosticism, the Templars. And so they started defaming and blasphemizing uh, Christianity in order to, you know, defeat the demiurge and connect with the higher source, the God above God, so to speak. And uh, and you see that influence here in America with all of the, you know, religious freedom that came here and synthesized with the native consciousness. And and now we have, to your point earlier, this wild history of the United States. I mean, one book I'll recommend you check out is the uh, esoteric history or the secret history of the outlaw Jesse James. I don't know if you've looked into Jesse James at all on your podcast, but he's got a whole history that's wrapped with the elites and treasure hunting and, and the Freemasons is really interesting because we only hear the gunslinger side of his story. We don't really hear, and I'm, I'm from New England, so we barely hear much about the West, but my grandfather loved cowboy movies. So I, I have a little spot in my heart for that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, the outlaw Jesse James is a is a strange dude. Have you looked into him at all? No, but the whole West is like that. Mm. I mean, the whole West is just, it's like the stomping grounds of the next level, like wizards that were going to appear in the 20th century. Uh, we covered uh, Wyatt Earp, for example. We did two episodes on him, and I called it, I called one of the episodes Earpstein Rides Again, because Epstein had just been... <laughs> done away with or whatever. Um, and I just kept seeing all of these similarities between him and the real guy. And I was like, okay, is this another fractal here? Um, but yeah, I recommend, I mean, I can't remember a darn thing about it. It was a couple years ago. Mm. But I just remember that was one of the first times I was like, all right, this seems made up. Because even at the end of his life, his wife was basically dictating the story 
Um, she was filtering everything that he said. And so what we got for the longest time was just this romanticized Wyatt Earp went and shot the bad guys. And, you know, he was a real stand-up guy, a real moral type. You read the real story, it's like the dude was one of the most corrupt, crazy people you can ever read about. Really? And, yeah, but, you know, I even had a guy with the last name Earp reach out to me and be like, I didn't know any of this. And I'm like, that's fine, dude. It's yeah, not. wow. I got a best friend who uh, whose dad loves Wyatt Earp. I mean, I think he's even got, like, memorabilia from the actual movie filming and stuff like that. So hopefully he doesn't hear this, but yeah, <laughs> jeez, man, that's interesting. I would have loved to have heard you tell Sam that uh, maybe we ought to schedule that in the future. Maybe a Epstein Wyatt Earp connection because <laughs> Sam loves all that stuff. I mean, geez, that would that would blow his mind. But you did cover a lot of really incredible stuff in that conversation on Tinfall Hat. So I encourage folks to go listen to that i know my audience surprisingly isn't all uh from the tinfoil hat podcast so please folks go and check that out but uh yeah brother i don't know how much more time you got for me tonight i know it's going a little late i apologize yesterday i i had something come up we were supposed to do this like in the the mid-afternoon uh but yeah what are you on the east coast time zone as well I'm on Central. Central? Oh, okay. So I'm a little ahead of you. No worries. All right. So, yeah, we could go as long as you want. I don't know how uh, long you typically go for, for your episodes, but what were some of the weirder stories that stuck out? Maybe something that you didn't expect to hit so hard, like the Wyatt Earp example. Like, are there any other characters from history that people might not expect to be so dark? Well, maybe not dark, um, but the Hatfields and the McCoys is a classic. Uh, I got so much pushback on that one. It was kind of funny. Um, it's funny because, um, well, maybe I should just explain it first. The Hatfields and the McCoys is a franchise. It's been turned into basically a theme park. Hmm. Um, and you can read into one side of it, and you're like, ah, oh, the Hatfields were doing such and such, and the McCoys were doing this thing, and that's why they got in a fight. And some people go to the classic, you know, they were fighting over a pig, and that's what started it all. Which sounds cute on Wikipedia, but if you do any digging at all, you discover that actually um, the Hatfields, I think it was the Hatfields. Now, I, I, I don't want to speak out of turn and start looking like a fool. This was another one that was a while ago. In fact, I just recommend everyone just go listen to the episode, Hatfields and McCoys, because the story is so screwed up. And if you do a little digging, you find out that there was a third party involved that wasn't the Hatfields or the McCoys. Well, and that's... That's the thing, man, and I'd love for people to go and listen to that episode as well. So please don't don't bother getting too far into it um, because, yeah, it is controversial. Whenever you go into these stories that seem to have a cottage industry built around them, like Shakespeare is another example of that. A big reason why people don't accept the Francis Bacon theory is because the town of Stratfordshire has built such a huge presence for itself around Shakespeare and the story of William Shakespeare, uh, this guy from Stratfordshire. And even here in Connecticut, there's a town called Stratford where there was a Shakespeare Globe Opera uh, that was like a pretty beautiful building that stood in this park on the river for a while until some vandals burnt it down. Uh, but yeah, it is interesting that like this, you know, these stories get identified so deep to one particular thing and then that becomes what people make money off of and then once that starts happening 
good luck on getting to the real story. I mean, obviously, it's it's possible if you do dig past Wikipedia, but uh, but yeah, it is it is interesting. Stonehenge is like that too. Some people say that Stonehenge has been moved, and I've also heard recently uh, a person told me that they built a building in the horizon where the sun rises on this very special day and kind of intersects in this spot on Stonehenge. They built a building right in the view of it. So you can't even see this ancient, you know, thing that's happened every, you know, so often for millennia uh, or maybe not millennia, but however long Stonehenge has been in the ground. You guys ever go come across like uh some interesting stories of Native Americans. I, I've come across several, but you ever look into like someone like Denagaweda or Tecumseh or any anyone like Geronimo or anyone like that? You know, to be perfectly honest, no. But on, uh, recently I've been very interested in Central America in particular, mm. Central and South America. There's a lot of history there. Um, but it's all it's all covered up by the revolutions. Mm. You know, there there's just like these hot times, like these terrible wars that just like sort of color the history all wrong. And of course, being Americans, it's hard for us to even know where to start with another country. I mean, I'm I'm barely I'm barely in my wheelhouse even talking about England or Europe in any way. Um, it takes so much research to get to the bottom of some of this stuff. Um, but the Central and South Americans, like. They've got something deep there, and I don't know how to classify it, but it's far older and far, like, scarier and definitely far more, like, nature-based. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't even know where to begin with it, but it's, like, it's one of those things where I'm just, like, looking at pictures of pyramids, and I'm like, I, I might have to go here. Mm. I might have to go here. To well, check this out. So, you know, since this is a swap cast and we got listeners on your end, uh, Maybe I'll share some stuff. So a recent guest of mine, uh, Esoteric Eddie, a.k.a. Eduardo Cano, he is, uh, he's is he got a lot of good stuff on his YouTube channel. I don't know if you guys have guests, but you, you definitely want to look into his research. He broke down this story of a, a guy whose name is, and forgive me, Titzcalipocla, uh, which I'm sure is pronounced better by native tongues. But uh, this guy was like a sorcerer who sort of took over the royal house of the Mayans back in, uh, you know, I think the 1000, you know, 10,000 BC or AD, something like that, you know, like the, the mid, the midpoint in the Mayans history. Uh, my date could be totally off, but either way, something that he did cursed Mexico to this day. Right. So this is, this is a very interesting story that I recommend uh, everybody look into. And then another thing that's really strange is that when you line up all of these major cities on the East Coast uh, and New Orleans and Mexico, you have this alignment that goes straight to Teotihuacan and it goes through, uh, like I said, New Orleans, Atlanta, Georgia, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, uh, uh, Trenton, New Jersey, New York City, New Haven, Connecticut, and Boston, all in one straight line, right? You can map this out. It's a straight line, and it goes straight through Washington, D.C. in that diamond, right? Because you, you've seen Washington, D.C. It's a diamond. It goes straight through it, and um, a recent guest, Peter Shampoo, told me that this in ancient, you know, in the colony days was called the uh, 
Satan's axes because everything west of it was still, you know, wild according to the Europeans. And, uh, and yeah, they were, they were sort of building on this ley line of energy that was pumping some wild energy from that pyramid. And I know I'm getting into some, maybe some new agey type stuff here, but think about it. You have a pyramid where thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were killed their hearts ripped out of their, you know, chests and, and a ritual is done with it. You know, if there's a ley line there, that energy is going to maybe affect all these cities somehow. And I mean, I don't know how many of those cities you visited, but I visited a couple of them and they're pretty rough. So <laughs> there's some, you know, sacrificial energy at play in a lot of those places. Uh, so, yeah, those are some things to consider when you're looking into Central America. Yeah, well, now that I'm interviewing you, <laughs> why do you think that is? What what is sacrificial energy? What's going on there? Why do, why do people do that? Mm. Well, why the cultures in Central America participated in that? That's a great question. I think there's something to do with um reincarnation, like I said earlier. I think there's a science, a lost science. You know, you can look into the Tibetan Book of the Dead. They talk about the the stages of bardo, right? The stages of death. And Sam's interviewed plenty of people who have experienced reincarnation uh, experiences. I, I've had one or two guests that have talked about their, um, not reincarnation, I'm sorry, near death experiences, which okay. are very different, but kind of speak to the idea that we're talking about here. And I think that, uh, you know, people's experiences at, massacre sites battlefields where they see like hauntings take that for what it's worth hauntings you know i don't believe in every ghost sighting but i think there's a truth to that you know this idea of like oh they built their house on an indian burial ground and now they're seeing spirits and you know tesla to take it over to tesla he was playing around with ley lines he understood the ability to transfer energy through the ground he called them telluric currents so if we have all these cities lined up on an arrangement that not only matches, uh, you know, mathematically, which is subjective, right? Maps are subjective. That's human beings applying something to a landscape. But there's an actual like geological nature to that line that they're plotting. It's a little out of my neighborhood of, of knowledge, but Peter Shampoo is far more knowledge, knowledgeable in that realm. I would refer you and anyone curious to his work. But yeah, I, I think that there's a real truth to, you know, our bodies having spiritual energy. And when a wrong is done to us so deep as like a murder or something really tragic that happens to people, I think that energy sticks around, you know, and it, and it affects people who are it tuned in enough or aware enough into their spiritual senses to maybe pick up on it. And, and that maybe explains why certain places are, are haunted. And you're talking to a guy who really never believed in ghosts most of my life. Like I'm not really, uh, that's not my thing, you know, but I was always fascinated with ley lines and it's so amazing to see when you look on the map to see how all of these cities are plotted in a way that almost looks like they had to know about these ley lines. They had to be either making arrangements for whatever purpose 
So it, whether it's just their lines that they were creating or that they're tapping into something that's already in the earth, that could be up for debate. But it's it's a fact that the Freemasons were a big part of all of the developments of those cities. And I think they had that kind of knowledge of like what you can do with residual energy that's been channeled over many, many, many years and even maybe tapping into the power of the ancient civilization. I mean, people talk about the bald eagle being a, a maybe a phoenix right and we talk about this ancient civilization that was here in the united states with the mounds and all that america is is a phoenix it rose from the ashes of this ancient place that you know seems to have kind of fell off of its uh you know it had a fall just like rome did right and what we came to here as europeans was not what it was a thousand years prior and the natives, you know, what really consisted of their lives, we may never know. I think there's a lot of lies, uh, especially about the Iroquois and the Cherokee. I mean, I've had a past guest tell me that the Cherokee had paved streets and brick buildings and they had plumbing and all these great things that, you know, they possibly could have learned from the early colonies and went and developed it far away where they didn't see and then they came and discovered it all during the louisiana purchase and we're like how the hell did you build that but who knows how far that stuff goes back i mean there is the the pueblo culture in arizona and they have these strange structures built into the the cliff faces themselves so i think there's many to your point earlier uh mysterious things and strange things about american history and uh and I think there's been many lies about the Native Americans and how deep their connection goes to uh, to Mesoamerica and, and this really high culture that existed there. I mean, there's plenty of evidence for it there. But other than Cahokia and the Serpent Mounds and all the other mounds that have been destroyed, the you know few that are remaining, you know, we don't really consider the Native Americans to be like kind of connected too deeply to that side of the world but the truth is there's evidence that they were trading cacao as far north as Nunavut and as far south as Chile and cacao only comes from a certain place in the world so if they were if they were trading cacao all the way up the Mississippi River they were trading ideas too they were trading words and so I think we we still haven't even scratched the surface of what uh, the Native Americans were really up to and and what their culture uh, really had to to offer the world you know it's unfortunate how the two the old world and the new world collided in a way where there was a clear winner you know and mm -hmm. and i think that that is only yet to be realized how much of a, a like a subversive energy that's now emerging right because you see people adopting native consciousness in a in a neo kind of way where people are fascinated with psychedelics and people are trying to do all these things to connect to nature and it's very reminiscent of what we're told the the native culture was like here so i could just be an idealist but that's that's what i see when i look into to history well i mean when you just blew my mind like <laughs> 10 times over and over and over again but i had a thought about about quarter of the way th or three quarters of the way through that um when you were talking about ley lines and masons being involved in all of this stuff i'd like to think of masons as sort of like it's like if you joined a minecraft server and there was a team that was already there that knew everything mm. 
they knew all the game and they're like, okay, well, we're going to go do our own thing. And you're like, okay, I guess I'll just punch trees. And then while you're doing that, they're planting all of this stuff all over the map. And you start running across it and you're like, how did this get here? And they're like, don't know. Maybe it was auto-generated by the computer. <laughs> um, but, you know, you look at that and it's like, okay, so let's just say, let's just get really crazy here. Let's say history as we know it, um, we know like 10% of, of it. Maybe there's another 90% we don't know about. Well, as normal people, we might not have access to the same kinds of records and stuff like that. So it could be that it's just this team of like, expert reality hackers that have left a cheat code, you know, page somewhere for the next next line of cheaters to pick up on. And they're just dancing circles around us while we're just trying to keep up with, you know, yesterday's news while they're already planning the next 10 years. You know, then the, the journey itself might be part of the, the game. And that's why, again, that's why I think that this suffering and stuff is all part of the plan. This This hard times, these crazy times is because the game is to get us to a point where we come to the understanding that the pursuit of truth is not so that you can find the truth. It's that so you can develop as the noble kind of person who searches for the truth. Mm. It's just the process of it. And that's kind of what makes me think that's why they wink at us. They say, you're on the right path. You're on the right path. You're on the right path. And people say, oh, it's a synchronicity. I'm like, yeah. And it might just be that there are people out there who are creating these because they're also on the right path and that's just what they put out there. And you're seeing a pattern and it's not actually a conspiracy to make you, you know, a horrible person. It's a conspiracy to grow you the hell up. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, you know, we do see a lot of people fall victim to it and it's interesting, you know, you mentioned, uh, a guest that I had on recently who I think kind of is like that, you know, all respect to him and his research, but you know, his name, we don't need to name him, but I think, you know, he doesn't see the uh, forest for the trees. Sometimes when you get like really worried about this doomsday idea. And I think there's so much more truth to what you're saying, the concept that you're saying, not to put you at odds with, uh, another person that's been on my show uh but yeah i think that that's the the concept that i try to highlight here uh, with this show is you know it's not the destination it's the journey you know that's that's what it's really about that's the way that's the Tao. you know and i think oh, yeah. that uh you know that's what i learned from bruce lee and martial arts and it really didn't uh, really blossom in me until many years later but, uh, you know, not that I learned from him directly. I just read some of his books. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think we're, we're both on our own respective paths in a really beautiful way, man. And I appreciate you sharing that thought because it's, it's really, it, it's not uh, uncommon, but it's rare, you know. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's something that you see in others and it goes without saying. You know, but you put words to something that many people struggled to say. So, kudos. Thank you. <laughs> it no. took me about four years to develop that. <laughs> no problem, man. Yeah, and I, I think there are so many things with, uh, you know, the Masons. It's such a hot-button topic that, you know, you, you either think it's polarizing, right? But <clears throat> in reality, there is a truth to what you're saying about them kind of creating and being a couple steps ahead uh, with the intention of helping you figure it out. And maybe the whole idea of them being 
secret is that when you do figure it out, you come and join them because you're like, okay, I got to be a part of this because that seems cool, you know, and they're they're happy to have you because you figured it out. But uh, yeah, I'm not a part of any uh, oaths or anything like that, so I'll never know. Uh, but it's fun to think that uh, there's some really uh, good people out there setting this stuff up for us. Well, if you want to, if you want to see this illustrated very well, watch V for Vendetta. Mm. You know, she thinks she's in a real prison. Turns out she's not in a real prison. She finds out it was V the whole time and she hates him at first. And then she gets it because now she has nothing to fear. She's faced it all. And sometimes I think they're like V for Vendetta, whoever they are. I don't want to put any names out there because I think that's part of the game. You're supposed to face your fears and become a whole person. And if that's where this journey leads you, you win. And if it leads you into despair and darkness, you've you've lost. Simple. Boom. Well said, man. Well, with that, I, is there anything that came up that you want to uh, leave us with? Any loose ends that you want to tie up? Um. I just think uh, if there's if there's anything I could say to the broader audience, it's that if you're black-pilled, you haven't quite made it yet. There's no reason to give up. And, uh, you know, you can – and sometimes you do have to sink really, really far before you can see just how funny it all is. Mm. It's, just a, it's, just a, it's just a game. And if you're taking yourself so seriously you can't laugh at your bad circumstances – you're holding on too much, so let go. Right, um, right. Yeah, we just we just had a really great conversation uh, about absurdism in a past episode, and that kind of reminds me of what you just said. Like, life is inherently absurd in so many ways, so take it a little less seriously and enjoy it more, right? I mean, <laughs> that's kind of the message that he left us with. And, dude, you've left us with so many interesting thoughts to follow up on, and I hope... My audience goes and subscribes right now on the same podcast app or what, however you listen to podcasts, go and find We Talk About Dead People. I'm sure it'll be there uh, wherever you listen to My Family Thinks I'm Crazy and vice versa for all the good folks that uh, we talk about dead people. Now, I call my group of folks lunatics because we're just all crazy. <laughs> uh, but do you have any you have a name like Sam calls his group the swarm? You got a name for, for your uh, audience yet? We've toyed with a few, but shovel bearers. <laughs> the shovel bearers. Okay. I was thinking it had something to do with graveyards or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Well, there's an interesting there's an interesting history with uh, this one particular graveyard. It's the oldest graveyard in the United States, and it's in New Haven, Connecticut. And I think it would uh, it would give you guys a couple really good episodes uh, for your podcast if you saw who was buried in there. So I'll send you a link to that. Maybe you'll be uh, interested either way. This has been a, a, a pleasure, Aaron. It's been great getting to know you, man. And uh, yeah, tell the audience where they can follow up with you, Aaron. And, uh, you know, because the RSS feed is just one side of it. I'm sure you have more. Well, if you want... All the links, they're all on our website, wetalkaboutdeadpeople.com. If you want to get in contact with me for an interview or anything else, Aaron at wetalkaboutdeadpeople.com. Uh, if you want to become a Patreon, a patron, give a couple bucks. That's You have no idea how helpful it is. Um, in fact, like I was calculating how many podcasts I give to, and I was like, man, they've just really built up over the years, and I feel really good about that. You know, So 
give back. Yeah, well, let's do let's do a, a Patreon swap. I'll I'll sign up for yours. You match me at whatever I sign up on yours because I have a hundred tiers. You can sign up for a penny. You can sign up for five dollars. <laughs> you can sign up for fifty dollars. But I'll ma you match my tier and it'll cancel itself out. But I believe in Patreon karma because I support. When I started listening to podcasts. I started listening to Tinfoil Hat, immediately signed up for the Patreon. Now I freaking work for the guy. So I don't know if that proves it right there. I don't have to go into all the other examples of where it's come up like that. But I think there's some Patreon karma. So folks, sign up for the We Talk About Dead People Patreon. Sign up for the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy Patreon. You can find it at our respective websites. My website is MyFamilyThinksI'mCrazy.com. And uh, brother... Aaron, this has been a pleasure. Folks listening, I hope you have a great moment wherever you are in the now. And that is the show. Thank you, folks, for tuning in. I really appreciate Aaron C. for joining me for this conversation. So please go over and subscribe to his podcast. We talk about dead people. Uh, very interesting stuff. They always dig up a piece of history that I'm sure you didn't know about. I didn't know about. And we could all learn a little something more. As for now, my goal... is to make it down to Susquehanna to the Susquehanna River. I want to make it down to the Susquehanna River and I cannot do it without your help. So if you've listened this long, please consider going in the episode description or just hear my words right now. You can send a Cash App donation. You can send a Venmo donation. And you can send a PayPal donation. And you guys are probably like, Mark, why are we funding your vacation? It's not a vacation, okay? This podcast is 100% listener funded. And if we want to put out some really awesome content this summer and take advantage of the beautiful weather, take advantage of the opportunity to travel, well, I need some help. Excuse me, I need some help. So please... Spare some change. Bring some value back my way. I know you get so much value out of this show. Please don't reload and, and help us out. It's at Mystic Mark on Venmo and at Mystic Mark on PayPal. And if you prefer Cash App, because I definitely prefer Cash App, it's 
money sign or dollar sign and my full name, Mark Steves Jr. And you can find that in the episode description if you have trouble spelling it. There are three E's in my last name. That's S-T-E-E-V-E-S. So Mark Steves Jr. on Cash App. Of course, don't forget that dollar sign at the front. If you prefer to go through uh, a less direct outlet, you can also support us via Buy Me A Coffee or Kofi. Um, just a more secure way, potentially, to donate. I, I think it's essentially the same thing as PayPal. Um, but, yeah, some people feel more comfortable that way, and I have no problem with that. So, Kofi, Buy Me A Coffee, very similar names there. And then, of course, the mainstay, what keeps us going, the Patreon and the Rockfin are growing and growing. We have 82 patrons in the Patreon. And the Rockfin is doing well, too. We just got a tip this week from uh, from somebody on Rockfin. So shout out to you. I doubt you hear this part of the show because you listen to the show on Rockfin and... The outros and intros never make their way to Rockfin. That's just for the video content, which, you know, take it or leave it. I prefer audio, but I also appreciate video. Depending on the medium, or depending on the show, rather. I'm a little tired, can you tell? Can you tell I just woke up and I'm recording this? It is July 14th, and I will be in Morris Plains, New Jersey, to see Sam Tripoli this weekend. Um, come on down. Tommy G will be there. Sam and Tommy G are doing a live show together, and I will be there as well. Not um, on stage. I think I'm going to be working the mixer and making sure everything gets recorded, so do not bother me. <laughs> and yeah, after we finish up in New Jersey, the plan is to drive down to Gnome Countryside, where our friend Michael Wan has been staying. And there's some weird, magical stuff going on down there. That's why Mike has really... Ooh, jeez, I gotta wake up a little bit before I record these. That's why Mike's been insisting that we go and visit, because he's got... A lot to show us. It's a bucolic, magical place. And with your help, the lovely listeners of this show, you can help me get down there. Or with your help, I can get down there. And I also want to include all of you in on it in some way. So we're going to be recording podcasts while we're down there. We're going to record a podcast in the car on the way down. We're going to record a podcast in person with Mike. And who knows what else we're going to do. Maybe film some stuff. I know Mike's got a nice camera. He's <sighs> like, I'm yawning a lot. So yes, with your help, we can make it to Gnome Countryside. Please, please support. And also... Everybody who donates, no matter what you donate, no matter how you help out, you'll basically be putting in your claim or your um, placeholder, so to speak, for lack of a better word, a ticket. You'll be getting a ticket for 
the new scene edition one and i hope to come out with edition two three four five as this concept grows and we have more ideas to share but scene edition one will be a fairly short pdf that you can use on your own road trip on your own walk around your hometown even just a walk around where you normally already walk around you don't even necessarily have to go out of state or even out of town to go on a journey and discover something new so our scene edition one that's s.e.e.e.n. edition one which stands for the synchro mystic exploration of the ever expanding now you could have your own exploration of the ever expanding now and this guide aims to show you very quickly uh, maybe some things that you aren't aware of and also uh, some fun ideas as to how you can get more into the flow of synchronicity, more into the flow of randomness, and also find meaning in that randomness. Because if it was all just randomness, then that would be pretty chaotic, and that's not at all what the scene is about. So, that is also on the table. You're not just funding my road trip, but you'll get something in return. And like I said, it's not a vacation, folks. This is a podcasting trip. This is a content trip. You've heard of content houses before? All these little frat bros hanging out in the content houses? Well, we're going on a content road trip, okay? Road trip 2022, baby. Put some money in the gas tank. Help me out. That's dollar sign M-A-R-K S-T-E-E-V-E-S J-R That's Mark Steves Jr. Wink! Or, if you prefer Venmo at Mystic Mark, PayPal at Mystic Mark, you could also do PayPal at Alt Media United and it goes to me as well. Uh, Patreon.com slash MFTIC Rockfin.com slash My Family Thinks I'm Crazy Kofi.com slash my family thinks I'm crazy and buymeacoffee.com slash mftic all of the links are in the description and that does it for today folks be sure to support Aaron C we talk about dead people subscribe he's got a patreon as well I am a patron of his patreon so and he is a patron of our patreon so shout out to Aaron C our new friend as for now folks Immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are, in the now. Man, I think, I think I'm fucking peeking right now. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service, can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. But I feel it like a purpose Wait, my third eye's open and my chakra's flowing All seven channels in my spirit's flowing Knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean It's the eightfold path and the sacred lotus uh, I'm peeking, flipping through Akashic records My ego's decomposing like a leper I'm Edgar Casey going some levitation So with zero hesitation as I jump into the spaceship 
I'm weary from faking like a earthling While skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling I'm spiraling, sacred geometry Studying my old selves like it's anthropology Honestly, feeling like life's a comedy As big a game as a paper-run economy I've been playing safe, but safest for the weak or hard way I'm peeking, tearing everything apart Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait Rest the ego and the frequent themes that keep me seeing life inside a box. Small minds kick rocks, Pandora, let's talk. Uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space. I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes. I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite. And every time I'm peeking, I can see it for an instant. I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd. Sheep's in their seats and the wolf's on the prowl. Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles. Consumerism living in their vacant smiles. Uh, now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky. I ain't even gotta try, gaining wisdom on the fly. I'm touching base with things I can't explain. Gods without names on a different plane. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. But I feel it like a purpose Wait I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person But the vibes are perfect uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service Can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, 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 wait.